from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, you're listening to the CER podcast with me, Beth Oppenheim, and today I have Luigi Scazzieri with me in the Westminster office to discuss Libya. Hi, Luigi. Hello, Beth. So the recent escalation of Libya's civil war has seen the Europeans jostling to regain their influence. The EU was once one of the more influential actors on the Libya conflict, but it has found itself demoted to the sidelines as other actors like Russia, Turkey, the UAE and Egypt have actually squeezed Europe out. And Europe has begun to look increasingly weak on this issue. But the Libya conflict, of course, remains very significant for Europe. There is a threat of a new refugee crisis and the power vacuum in Libya has created a breeding ground for extremist groups like Islamic State. In January, German Chancellor Angela Merkel hosted an international conference in Berlin, which brought together the international actors involved in the conflict and they reached a promise that they would stop interfering in Libya. So we'll look at how successful the conference was, why Europe has struggled to assert its influence in Libya, and also how the conflict might yet evolve in the future. So first things first, Luigi, why is Libya at war? So I think I'll give you a bit of the backstory to start off with. But essentially, after the 2011 Western intervention, which was led by Britain and France to oust uh, uh, Colonel Gaddafi, uh, you had a period of, I suppose, what in retrospect seems like relative stability with uh, all the elections taking place in 2012, oil production picking up. But that government fails to really consolidate its authority. Uh, In the middle of 2014, there is a split and strife has essentially been going on at a low level or at a higher level since then. What has happened in late 2015, you have a UN-backed process that leads to the formation of a unity government, which is the same one that is currently the UN-recognised government in Tripoli. Again, this government struggles to assert its authority. And fast forward to April 2019, you have uh, Khalifa Haftar, launching his offensive on Tripoli to to take over the city and essentially install himself as Libya's ruler. Now, it's not that Europeans were uninvolved in this period. In a sense, they were very involved in their efforts to control migration, uh, especially Italy, France also in its efforts to counter um, terrorism in the Sahel has dealt quite extensively with Libya. But Europeans have not really had a common line on how to address this politically. So uh, name, after the formation of the unity government of, of 2015, they all backed it. In practice, when you know, it emerged that the government was unable to consolidate its authority, the European position fragmented with Italy and France pursuing slightly different routes, which yeah, leads us to the, to the current situation of April 19. What happened essentially was that Haftar's backers between April and and January, uh, April 19 and January of 2020, increased their support for him, allowing him to gain ground, his backers particularly being the UAE, Egypt, but also to a degree Russia through the involvement of uh, uh, Russian mercenaries. Given that it was under pressure, the government of National Accord, the unity government in Tripoli, essentially asked for international assistance. This wasn't forthcoming from either the EU or the US. And it then uh, turned to Turkey, 
which agreed to assist it in exchange for quite a controversial agreement on uh, delimiting their respective maritime zones, which greatly upset some European member states, uh, especially Greece, given that the agreement also covers areas that Greece considers part of its exclusive economic zone. So uh, with, with fighting escalating, that, that's what kind of pushed Merkel into action. The increasing role of Russia, the increasing role of Turkey, this is what was the basis for the Berlin Conference, where um, Europeans uh, you know, tried to uh, bring the, the relevant parties together and push them to, to de-escalate. So how successful was the conference so the, the conference produced uh, essentially a commitment on part of external actors to stop violating the UN arms embargo, to stop providing military support to either Haftar or uh, the government of national accord in the, in the case of Turkey. They also agreed to nominate members of a, of a committee that would then decide on how to uh, exactly reach a truce. I mean, in a sense, the, the conference was successful because at least in theory it put all international parties on the same agenda of, of how to, to stabilise Libya. In practice, the commitments appear very weak. So what we've seen in the past weeks has, uh, has been a continuation of external support for the parties in Libya. Supply of arms. Exactly, supply of arms and equipment. And there, there is no ceasefire yet, or at least none, uh, not, not one that is particularly stable. So in recent days especially, we, we've seen increasingly alarmed uh, statements from the UN you know, calling on parties to really uh, stick to their commitments in the deal, which, which doesn't remain too, too likely in my view. Do you think that this conference really was more of an exercise in uniting Europe than it was actually in meaningful conflict resolution? Yes, although I would even question the premise in the sense that it united Europe to such a great extent, in the sense that at the end it was a German initiative. It was not clear to what degree France was on board with this in, in practice, for the reason that France is very much open let's say, to the idea of Haftar taking over in Libya and uh, um, unwilling, along with others, along with the United States, for example, to apply uh, pressure on Haftar's backers to, uh, to de-escalate. But really, the main, the main issue is that international parties keep uh, essentially stating that Libyans need to reach a ceasefire, but Libyans won't reach uh, a ceasefire until international support dries up, which means that there has to be pressure on Haftar, who is the attacker in this situation. I mean... If the government of national accord stops fighting, well, they, they are under attack in Tripoli, essentially. So it, in these cases, it is always the, the attacking party that has to stop. He has very little incentive to because of several reasons, really. So first of all, there is the concern, I think, that if the attack halts, then the coalition which he heads, which is, you know, quite fragmented and in a sense fragile, would it, its cohesion would be undermined. And, uh, and therefore, one needs to, to keep the conflict going. At the same time, as I have said, that the backers, especially the UAE and Egypt, are not coming under any substantial international pressure to stop supporting him. The United States is playing you know, a role which is in some ways ambiguous with Trump you know, in quite typical fashion, I suppose, signalling a stance that has at times been quite open towards Haftar. Uh, and as I've mentioned, the European Union also not being uh, fully on the same page due largely at, right now to France, but in the past there were also disagreements between France and Italy. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the conference is that we've seen Germany wanting to take leadership, in part because it saw the, the space to do so, I suppose. 
question just on Italy, which is probably the European country that has the most to lose from the Libya conflict, in part because of the possible resurgence of the migration crisis. I'm just interested to know what the discussion is now inside Italy about how to manage the conflict and what's the perception of the Italian public as well. So, I mean, I think in the to answer the second part of your question first, in the eyes of the public, Libya is a, a source of migration and a source of extremism, and the two are very closely tied together. Therefore, it's a problem to be kept at bay and something that I think that counterintuitive tendencies can exist. On one stage, you don't want to be involved at all. On the other stage, you want Italy to be involved if any other powers are involved. Mm -hmm. So you don't want Italy to be uh, displaced by France. As to the government's stance, initially they were, and by initially I mean in 2015, in 2016, in 2017, amongst the main backers of the of the UN uh, UN backed Tripoli government. But uh, as Haftar gained more and more power, especially in 2018 and uh, and 2019, Italy shifted away from the government government of national accord. And I think now it's trying to reposition itself. But essentially, it has lost much of the influence that it had over uh, the the government of national accord, and not really gained any on Haftar. Mm. So there's. Um, there's a lot of criticism about how Italy has handled this, and you're right that it is one of the countries most uh, most exposed. Okay, and and looking forward, do you think that there is any prospect of resolving this conflict? So, I mean, to resolve the conflict, you would need a ceasefire. To have a ceasefire, you need pressure. You need incentives on the parties involved, namely, especially Haftar, to strike one, which means that you need pressure on its international backers. This means that you need to have pressure from Europe and the US, ideally both of them, on states that they have good relations with, that they are allied with, UAE, Egypt and, and Turkey, to stop providing weapons and material to, to different factions in Libya. I think there's a temptation in some quarters to see that, uh, to think that the conflict can be resolved if Haftar wins. And um, I'm quite sceptical of that, and especially of the notion that he would bring stability. Mm. Uh, his coalition, as I mentioned before, is quite fragile. He would still have uh, faced many opponents because he's a very polarizing figure. And he's also 76 years old, so he wouldn't offer a prospect of stability for particularly long. And, and also from a European perspective, I mean, Haftar would presumably play off all his backers against each other. So, you know, he has close links to Russia, he has close links to Egypt, to the UAE. I'm not quite sure why he would be such a good prospect for, for European states. So in light of this, I think the only way is to have a ceasefire leading to a political process whereby you, you have a new uh, agreement over, over a government. And this is the, the, the official UN plan. You know, the GNA would eventually be replaced by a new government. And if Europeans, you know, there is talk, for example, of um, a, a military mission in Libya, or of um, resuscitating the use Operation Sophia to enforce the arms embargo. I, um, I mean, these are all possibilities, I think, but they won't uh, become particularly likely until there is a ceasefire in Libya, because otherwise it's not a ceasefire monitoring mission, but rather more of a ceasefire enforcement mission, which I see as even, even less likely. So if Europeans are willing, I, I, I'm quite sceptical that they're willing to actually take action. There's a lot of calls going around for them to do so. But France, I think, remains perhaps the, the blockage to, to, to this, um, this pressure being exerted as a, but by the EU as a whole. I, I mean, it's possible that individual states would, but uh, Germany and Italy, much more limited leverage on the UAE and, uh, and Egypt than France does. 
so I mean, in a sense, it's a it's a tragedy for European politics because uh, Europeans are some of the most affected by uh, the ongoing destabilization, and as the conflict escalates, they will continue to be affected. But like once again, they seem to be unable mm. to forge a coherent stance and to do their part to put an end to the conflict. As well as European incoherence, there's also you, you mentioned that it would be important for the EU to cooperate with the US in exerting the appropriate pressure. But what are the chances of that kind of cooperation given the strains on the transatlantic relationship, which we've seen playing out in other issues across the Middle East in Trump's deal of the century for Israel and Palestine last week and, of course, on the Iran nuclear deal um, earlier this year as well. So do you have any optimism that that sort of cooperation will be possible? I think it's likelier than on the other two cases because the aims are actually aligned. So everyone at the end wants a stable Libya that doesn't serve as a, um, as a hub for a re- revival of the Islamic uh, State. And from a European perspective, that, um, that doesn't serve as a departure point for migrants. In the case of Iran, the aims are very different. In the case of the Middle East peace process, they are as well. So it's not impossible. But, of course, it, it's also not easy to, uh, to perhaps imagine. So over the weekend, we saw the EU High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, Joseph Borrell, putting out an opinion piece where he called upon Europe to embrace its power um, to transform itself into a meaningful foreign policy actor um, to kind of cease the the divisions and for member states to stop using their veto to undermine Europe's power. As you already mentioned, there are some calls going around at the moment from senior figures in the EU and EU affairs suggesting that Europe should be putting troops on the ground in Libya and pinning the EU's ineffectiveness on this conflict on its military absence thus far. Do you agree with that assessment? Do you think it's time for European boots on the ground in Libya? I think so, yes. But that won't uh, really be an option until there is a ceasefire. So it's possible to envisage uh, a European mission, perhaps using the battle groups that have never been used, to police a ceasefire once uh, what's it's in place. But first, the problem is more fundamental, really. It's not that Europeans lack the willing... This is easier to solve. Libya is easier to solve than putting boots on the ground. Because what it requires, at least to reach a ceasefire, is extensive diplomatic pressure on those parties that are escalating the conflict. Then, at that stage, one might be able to actually talk of uh, putting boots on the ground and, in any case, of taking on a more ambitious role. But at this stage, what's lacking is the will to exert diplomatic pressure, uh, as well as, of course, a lack of of unity, as you you mentioned. Well, Luigi, thank you for this truly fascinating conversation. And listeners can find your insight on Libya on the CER website. And this will be an issue that we'll come back to again and again, I think. So for now, thanks, Luigi. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Beth. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CR underscore EU.